for joining us today at CCSC. I'm Harold, one of the pastors. It is my privilege to bring to you God's word. We've been going through the gospel of Mark, an unexpected savior. Today we come to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. Let's give our full attention to this. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send, send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. This is God's word so far. Thanks be to God. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus deals with the man demonized, plagued, oppressed by demons. Later on in this chapter, he heals a woman from a dire physical disease and actually raises Jairus' daughter from death. Today, we're only going to look at this first episode. And this happens to be the longest and most vivid account of any other account in the Gospel of Mark. And this is the longest account of any exorcism encounter in any gospel. Why is this here in the scriptures? What can we learn? What can we learn from this? I've got three headings that will guide us along. First, this offers the best explanation of reality. Second, we're going to look upon the man's misery. Third, the delivery that Jesus brings. Three things. Reality, misery, and then finally, delivery. First, are there evil supernatural beings and forces called demons? We cannot escape it in the study of scriptures. I mean, it's literally almost all over the place, especially in Mark's gospel. The once dominant scientific worldview, which tries to explain everything materially, therefore the answer is medicine or just more science. A more popular worldview, which is based upon therapy and psychology, the answer now is talk it out and learn self-acceptance. Another worldview that is moralistic or legalistic. So if there's anything that's gone wrong or anything that happens to you that is wrong, 
Seek to do the right thing. Repent and just do the right thing. Finally, in many parts of the world, there are superstitious worldviews, even within the church, where you almost can find a demon behind everything. Demons are to be blamed as the main reason for everything. So you just got to make sure to cast them out, perform exorcism rituals. Now here, the Holy Bible is more realistic than any other worldview. The scriptures that Jesus taught, the scriptures that the Holy Spirit inspired uh, and breathed into his people to write down is not simplistic. It's never reductionistic, but actually it's more complex and very nuanced, very nuanced. Of course, this does not mean the Bible offers an exhaustive explanation for everything, nor does it exclude the true elements of all other worldviews. You take, for example, Dr. Anthony Fauci's boss, Dr. Francis Collins of the NIH, who holds a Christian worldview, but at the same time is a world-class scientist. To have a Christian biblical worldview is not irreconcilable with being a world-class scientist, because if you stop and think about it, only if you have intelligent design, only if the world and the cosmos is not just random chaos, but there is a design and order to it, then and only then you can have predictable, discernible, natural laws to study. Back to the scriptures, back to how Jesus viewed the whole world. It's more realistic. It's actually more realistic. And to bring this closer to home, if you try to deal with life, you try to deal with their problems, you try to deal with your addictions and pains with less of an understanding or less of a view than the Bible's, I'm afraid to say you're going to emerge very discouraged and defeated. I'll bring this closer to home. Do you know how many recovery programs, Alcoholics Anonymous, or addiction recovery programs borrow from Christian capital, if you will? They borrow heavy from Christian material? Because the programs teach you, yes, there are genetic factors. Yes, there are family history factors. There are psychological factors. There's emotional factors. There are very strong historical things at play. But these programs also tell you to pray. It actually tells you to play because it acknowledges that there are spiritual forces. There are spiritual powers at work. And if you don't deal or handle, uh, handle these uh, forces all together, if you don't pay attention to how complex or how deep it can go. You know, even as some counselors would say, some psychological and emotional problems are double locked. Double locked. Meaning it's not just material. It's not just scientific. But there is an invisible spiritual realm just as much in play. You know, growing up in a church, as I told you last week, I witnessed something firsthand at a camp that remains inexplicable to me if I did not believe in the Bible. Uh, and that incident kind of scared our entire youth group, sobered, sobered us up for like months on end, but it can only last for months on end when something scares you that much. But the better reason why I actually believe that demons are real, very active, even as you're listening to the word of God, very active, even in my preparation for the word of God, 
is that Jesus did. Jesus believed and he taught and he treated this man with demons entirely different than other people who had various diseases. You see, meaning Jesus knew the difference and the scriptures know the difference between a seizure, a fever, paralysis, leprosy, hemorrhaging versus a person who is being tormented by demons. This is why Mark chapter 1 verse 34 reads, Jesus, quote, healed various diseases and cast out many demons. Turn to the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 4 verses 14 41. Who was a physician? Here he describes. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, brought them to Jesus, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. So the ultimate reason why I believe in the biblical worldview that demons are active and real and they do exist is because Jesus did. And Jesus who went about healing various ailments and diseases, distinguished and treated and tailored his healing for each person, depending upon what you really suffered from. Or else Jesus must have been out of his mind. The Bible offers the best explanation of reality. Second, let's look at the misery. And oh, this is a most miserable, miserable man we find in this passage. Verse 2 introduces him plagued with an unclean spirit. It does not say that he was possessed. The Greek verb is to demonize, to be harassed, attacked. And where demons seek, maybe even full control. But what we find here, I believe, is a man in his final stages, toward the final stages of misery. Look at verses 3 through 6 again. Look at his misery. He's driven to live, live among the tombs. People have tried to chain him down, but he would break the chains and shackles into pieces. Evidently, people had given up on him. He was abandoned. He was rendered hopeless. And then the the text tells us night and day, continually, ongoing, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. Cutting himself with stones. This was a most miserable, miserable man. You know, just a note on self-inflicted harm, self-loathing, a lack of self-esteem as some people would describe it. Do you know then Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, the scriptures tell us that Satan, his very name stands for the accuser, the accuser. And Satan's main and most potent weapon against all of humanity is to just level you with total worthlessness and condemnation. And his voice sounds something like this. Look at you. Look at you. Look at what you've done. Look at how filthy and how much you've done. Compare yourself with others. Envy them. Hate them. Load them too. 
There's no possible way you could be loved by God or forgiven by God. You're beyond hope. Your life should come to an end. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, it says, day and night, Satan accuses and attacks the people of God with these kinds of accusations. And I assure you this day, as you are listening in, if you are hearing those kinds of voices on repeat, it is not just a lack of self-esteem. It's demonic accusation, demonic accusation. Back to this man in the final stages of misery, meaning it started at some point. Uh, this man wasn't always in this condition. We can safely assume it started at some point and it just got worse and worse and worse. His misery, in other words, was gradual or it came and happened to him in stages. He had once made a pact with evil. He kept doing it, kept at it, and he gained strength. He felt empowered. This was even a superhuman kind of strength. But I want you to notice at the same time, he had become a slave. Strengthened, but miserable. Empowered and enslaved. Now, as you listen to this story, or you hear any stories like this, even the true story behind the making of the book and the movie called The Exorcist of a Boy in Maryland, so many of us, you just want to put as big and safe of a distance between people like that and ourselves, and you might assume that you are totally immune to anything like this happening to you. Maybe. But I want you to know that Apostle Paul warns us all. He warns even Christian people. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Here's what he wrote. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Apostle Paul says, believers and non-believers alike, we're wrestling and fighting. Now, you just don't stand a chance without the armor of God that you find in Jesus Christ. Paul goes on after this verse to say, arm yourself with the full armor that is found when you are united, when you belong to, when you're loved by, when you're covered by Jesus Christ. That'll give you the only chance to withstand and fight against these spiritually evil forces. That is the only way you're going to stand a chance of not falling under the same spiritual spell. And do you know what the same spiritual spell has been and will always be? That if you give your life for anything else but God, if you give your life to anything else but God, it'll actually bring misery. The same spiritual spell is whatever you give your life to empowers and enslaves you. So if you live for safety and security, if you live for rare accomplishments, if you live for romance even, if you live to be admired and liked, you live for wealth, whatever it may be, see, you've made a pact with it and you're going to be driven by it. So on the one hand, you're probably going to do pretty well. 
You're going to be obsessive. You're going to be committed. You're going to do better than other people not as committed as you because you made a pact with this. You're living for this. And you might actually move up the ladder quicker and you might actually get it faster. Get whatever you want in life faster. On the other hand, on the other hand, you may not notice it. You're going to become addicted to it. Obsessive compulsive about it. Even if and when it makes you miserable. Even as it makes you miserable. Now, here's what I understand about demonic forces. Demonic forces just take our natural choices, natural ambitions, natural drives, natural work, natural desires, and then they just pour fuel on that fire and they overblow it and they entangle you. They try to control you. They intensify it to the degree that it becomes something that will make you miserable. I mean, in the Avengers Infinity Wars, it's a... It's an eerie scene where Thanos is after the soul stone and there he must sacrifice and give up that which he loves to gain the soul stone. Is it really that different for us in life? See, some of you, whatever you live for, you're willing to sacrifice anything for it. Loved ones nearby, of course, colleagues and competitors it doesn't matter how much money, if you can just make that much money, just take advantage of all the vulnerable and the poor, just grind them to the ground. You'll sacrifice all that. You're going to sacrifice your conscience. You're going to sacrifice your physical body. You're going to sacrifice ethical codes and laws. And what happens after some time? It only has to come gradually. It only has to come upon you in stages. Misery happens this way. What happens one day? Physical, mental breakdowns. You find that nobody's around you. You reap what you sowed. There's all kinds of breakdowns that you experience. And you find yourself wondering, how did I end up in this place? You know, every Christmas time, there's that charming, most popular movie. It's a wonderful life that plays. I love it. But I suggest you, Demons never play their own version of it's a miserable life. They never play it out for you until it's too late. <laughs> you know, some of you are thinking, Pastor, wow, today you're just going to go for the, uh, the scare doom and gloom tactics today, huh? Wow, that's a little heavy. Uh, that doesn't work with me. Well, I assume then you prefer soothing sentimental tactics, but I never, ever mean to scare anyone unnecessarily. All I ask of you is which reflects reality. Have you not seen history as a broken record? When you open up the book of Ecclesiastes, it says you can gain everything under the sun. But without God, it will always let you down. It will always let you down. It's just a matter of when. Miseries that come upon us gradually. Demons have to only succeed and work in stages. Whatever you live for, whatever you live for, both empowers and enslaves you. Let's look at the third. Most important. Delivery. Delivery. First, let me just clear this weird, weird description of 2,000 pigs. What's up with these pigs? 
The demons cry out, don't just send us into the sea. Obviously, uh, they need a new host for their parasitic existence. And Jesus gives them permission to run into 2,000 pigs and they all rush and drown in the sea. All kinds of wild numerous theories. None of them make sense. Nobody is really conclusive about this. All I know is this must have happened once again because it's just so odd. And what Jesus shows here, of course, 2,000 pigs of enormous economic value. One human soul, one tormented human being is worth far more than losing a fortune, losing all that wealth as they drown into the sea. But back to how Jesus begins his delivery. He asks, he asks this man, what is your name? What is your name? And the man does not answer it. The demons inside him answer. The answer is legion, legion. In Roman armies, 5,600 soldiers to be exact, close to 6,000 men. 6,000 soldiers was a legion. That's about how many demons had come inside this man. And by Jesus asking him, what is your name? He is asserting his authority over them. And this man controlled by a legion falls down upon his knees only to cry out. Look at verse seven. Look at verse seven with a loud voice. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Do not torment me. Now here, commentators note that this is an ironic attempt by the demons to actually perform exorcism against Jesus. Because all exorcists back in ancient days would call upon a higher power. Namely, they would call upon here like the name of God. But here, the demons have run into God. They've run into Jesus who is God. There is no higher power. There is none other. And so, as you see these demons come running, falling on their knees, begging, almost negotiating how much torment Jesus was going to deliver upon them. If you ever wonder why was there a prevalence of these explicit, explosive uh, demonic activity in Jesus' day, it's because they all recognize their judge. They all recognize their executioner. And as the demons even ask for permission to do anything, even to rush into the pigs, we can safely conclude there is no contest. There's no real struggle. You know, after a lopsided MMA UFC event, some of the announcers will say, when it was so, so not close, he said, that was a non-event. A non-event. That's what happens between Jesus and a legion of demons. But by the end of this gospel, we're going to find Jesus himself abandoned and tormented. He ends up crying and bleeding upon a cross. He ends up crucified upon a cross and laid in a tomb only to be raised on the third day, breaking all of the powers of Satan, sin, and death. To defeat evil, Jesus absorbed the evil into himself took it down into a tomb to break its powers once and for all. Please, please pay close attention with me to this. Jesus, in order to destroy evil, 
without destroying you and I, he allowed himself to be destroyed. This is how Jesus delivers us from evil. To get rid of it, he didn't get rid of you. He allowed himself to be crushed. So not only does Jesus teach his people to pray, deliver us from evil. Not only should we pray that, practice these two ways for Jesus to deliver us from evil. Evil. Not only pray it, but practice these two ways. Here's the two ways that Jesus delivers us, his people, from all evil. First, Jesus didn't demonize. Jesus didn't demonize. This is remarkable all throughout his life. He did not single out a single group of people based on color, class, condition, even creed. And seek to get rid of them. Here, Jesus went out of his way to heal the most despised by the Jews. It was a man in Gentile territory. A man who lived among the tombs. Inhabited by pigs. And of course, with an unclean spirit. A demon. This is what we call a quadfecta of unclean. But Jesus didn't demonize anybody. He came to heal and touch us all. Ultimately, Jesus came to forgive the very ones who ended up killing him. Practice, practice this for Jesus to deliver us from all evil. Because if you go out and I go out with the attitude, I'm good, you're downright evil. You paint broad, absolute strokes. Strokes, I'm altogether good, you all out there are so evil. If you do that, you're going to get sucked into the cycle of self-righteousness and retaliation and violence going on all the time throughout the history of the world. It was that Russian novelist, Alex- Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who realized, who realized the line between good and evil goes right down the middle of every human heart. The line between good and evil goes down the middle of every human heart. Have you realized this? This is why Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 and 21, he charges us to do this. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And going to verse 21. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And why did Apostle Paul charge this? Never repay evil with evil. In fact, overcome the evil with good. Because if you repay evil with evil, you'll never defeat evil, but become it. The first way that you and I must not only pray, but practice. This is the way of Jesus. For him to deliver us from all evil. Jesus didn't demonize. Here's second, last one. See how much, see how much it must have tormented and caused Jesus to deliver you and me from all evil. See how much it must have tormented him. See how his clothes were stripped. See how he was driven into the tombs. And see how much you must be Loved by him. For him to do that. 
see and sit there while you see this. See of how much value and beauty and worth you must be to Jesus Christ for him to pay all that cost to come and get you and deliver you, transfer you from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. And when you see and sense the sacrificial love of Jesus, how brilliant and deep and wide and everlasting it goes, you'll be able to see everything else as it really is. Only with the love of Jesus, you'll be able to see everything else that is. You don't have to have that anymore. It's no longer your life. It's no longer your greatest love. It's not your glory. It's not your pride. The sacrificial love of Jesus Christ breaks previous pacts. All the spells are broken. It's over. It's over. And it is he who delivers us from every demonic stronghold, idol, and power. Jesus is in the delivery business. He is in the delivery business. Do you see how it happens? Do you know how he does it? Look at this man. Once most miserable, most miserable. Are any of you more miserable than him? And yet this man who had once begged for Jesus to go away, do not torment me, get away from me. Just like most people in that region later on in this chapter, beg for Jesus to leave their town because he's such an economic threat, but he's an existential threat. They're deathly afraid of him. And just as people in that town and our town, of course, would always beg for Jesus to go away. Do you know how Jesus delivers you? Later on, the same month's most miserable man begins to beg for Jesus to stay with him. He begs to be with him. He actually begs to follow him onto a boat. Verse 18. And so when you and I just do not beg Jesus away, beg for him to stay, beg to be with him, and beg to follow him all the days of your life, he will deliver you and set you free. It does not matter how tormented, how miserable you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been enslaved. You, the demons, the controls, the idols, lifelong loves are no match for the love of Jesus Christ for you. He is happy to deliver and he is perfectly good in the delivery business. Instead of being able to follow Jesus onto a boat, Jesus tells him, go back, go back and tell the people of how much mercy I had upon you. And in fact, this once demonized man becomes the first preacher, evangelist, missionary into Gentile territory, even before anyone else, even before Apostle Paul. And for those of you right now, Believers and followers of Jesus Christ who know, who believe Jesus has delivered me from the ultimate worst powers of sin and of death, but you're going through something. You are going through something today. You've been going through it for a very, very long time. Maybe people don't know about it. A certain kind of trial, a temptation you've just given into over and over and over and over again, and you're miserable. You're miserable. You're miserable. 
Oh, my brother and friend, my sister, just come running. Fall on your knees. Beg him to stay. Beg him to come be with you. Beg him so you might follow after him. And he will surely, surely deliver you. All over again, again and again. Let me pray for us this day. Father God, we thank you that you sent Jesus Christ to be the one who overcomes and defeats evil without destroying us. Oh Lord, we have so much to learn. We have so much to grow. And I pray, oh Lord, you would teach us and deliver us from all evil. Lord, I pray for anyone who is listening in who is crying out, needs a savior, wants someone to deliver them from their troubles, and their miseries. Lord, would you summon prayers from them and come into their lives and make their lives whole, new, and clean. Oh, Lord, hear us, we pray, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.